Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Listen For Real. I am, you know, if you've been listening, you know I've been gone a while. There was a bit of a hiatus here, and that is part of women's stories is women's women give themselves permission to take hiatus. Hiatuses? Hiatus? How do we even say that, Rana? I don't know. Oh, God. Who cares? I took a break. How about that? I took a long that works break. That for me. Mentally, I could barely form words for a few months there. <laughs> and now we are back. And I honestly think my first few podcasts back, Rana, I'm so excited you're here. And mm-hmm. I want everyone to know who you are because women's stories are sacred. Our individual experiences are wide and varied and precious and real. And sometimes they're gritty and painful. And sometimes they're just jubilant and just dancing in the streets. Wonderful. And it's all important and it's all good. This is what I've learned over this last year. Mm-hmm. And um, and our stories have lenses and filters too. And we're going to talk a lot about that today. So y'all, I want you to know my friend, Rana Dietrich. She's a force to be reckoned with. She is a storyteller. (laughs) She is a writer. She is many things. But I'm going to let her tell you why. I'm not going to read you a bio. You guys know I don't do this. Uh, You can read the bio in the show notes. You can see her pedigree and how amazing and qualified she is and all of the things she's done. And please follow her and please know her work. All of that will be there in the show notes. Everything you ever want to know to access her, to access her upcoming book. It's amazing. But in the meantime, would you just like talk to my friends like we're all here on the couch together, Rana, and just tell them what you want to know, what you want them to know. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. When I think about this, you know, just as though we were sitting on a couch, of course, I wouldn't give a formal introduction. I would be in conversation and responding to what I'm hearing around me. And so in that vein, I will say um, I'm a huge lover of stories. Uh, I am really captivated and fascinated by the stories that have influenced us Uh, culturally, but also personally, many of which we don't even pay attention to, that we're not even aware have influenced us as profoundly as they have. And I've come by that, I think, in large part, in in terms of just being aware of my own stories, Um, the, the stories that have shaped me, the stories that I've grown up with, and then the way those become the stories that we tell ourselves which often are not the most pleasant and kind and generous. They're harsh and usually misogynistic and painful. And so a lot of what I've been doing for, wow, a long time, probably close to 20 years now, is thinking about healing from my own stories and listening to the stories of other women. And then along the way, writing about the stories of women, um, more formally, of course, I am a writer. I'm a coach. I'm a spiritual director. Uh, what's most important? I'm a mom. I have two adult daughters that are beyond amazing. Um, and I hang out at the beach when the sun is out. I drink coffee. <laughs> I drink I watch, coffee. You know, I binge on Netflix and Amazon like all the rest of us. And I read books. You know, I could keep going. There's lots of things. Oh my gosh. Okay. So that leads me right into 
this idea of story. Uh, when I do workshops, this is a transition I made this year. When I do workshops, I, I, I coach women in speaking and finding their truest, most authentic voice. But before one can drop into her body, out of the chatter of her mind, by the way, mm-hmm, which is ego, mm-hmm. personality, culture, all the things, and can drop into her body, because I believe the body is more the voice of spirit and soul oftentimes, I'm learning I have had to help women dismantle the voices and stories and narratives that they're currently listening to or that were fed to them. Right? No so question. No question. I don't, what would you say those narratives and stories that were once fed to Rana? Let's start there because mm-hmm. I think all of us listening right now go, oh, I do have narratives and stories that I've always received as gospel about me, that this is the ultimate truth about me. It must be true. It comes from inside me. And a lot of times that's a total load of crap, right? Exactly. Yeah. So what what comes to mind for you? Because I want everyone listening to go, oh, that's mine. That may not even be true. I don't have to hold on to that. Does one come up for you? Because that's my first thought right now. What do we dismantle? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I can talk about specific stories, you know, actual stories that I think are imbued within us. But, yeah. but the way that you're asking that question, what that makes me think of is really more of like family of origin, right? Like I'm mm-hmm. the oldest of three. Um, I grew up in the church in an intact family, um, all the things. And mm-hmm. so the... I think the story that I've had to name, acknowledge, and then deconstruct, kind of break down and let go of, is the part of me that equates my value and worth with a other people's expectations of me. Mm. And in a kind of weird way, like how willing I am to persevere and suffer and work hard, that the more that my life is defined by things that are painful or difficult or require my discipline or my, you know, like grit my teeth and hang in there, good for me. I'm, I'm that thing. And it, it, isn't, it's a lie from the pit of hell. It's not actually true. Totally. I've watched it over the years, like obviously early in therapy, like I started to recognize the part of me that felt like I was responsible for holding everything together in my marriage, everything together in my family of origin, that that, that was my role and responsibility. And I had this sort of martyry kind of thing going on Oof. and it got twisty because I didn't want to do it. I knew I didn't have to do it. But at the same time, the story I tell myself is that that's who I am. That's what I do. Yes. So when I started making choices that um, upended that story, where I changed my behavior, no longer took responsibility for everybody else's shit, um, no one liked that. You know, everyone's like, go back to what's happening. Go back to the the, story. No one said it this way, but it's basically go back to the story we're all telling here. We like you there better. Yeah, well, we're in great service to them. Yes, (laughs) and then I have to 
<laughs> and I have to work back through that again, right? Like, oh, wait, where is my value and worth? Who does define that? How do I hold on to myself when it feels like I'm just upsetting the apple cart every place I turn? Yeah. Um, so I love that you're talking about this as it relates even you know, to other women learning to trust their voice, learning to use their voices. I think the the phrase that I use all the time is that there is a know that I know that I know that I know voice within me. Yeah. And I have to, I get to learn to listen to it and trust it, but it's hard because when I do, all hell breaks loose. Or at least I think it will. I'm afraid that it will. I believe that it will. Or I think mm. people can't handle me. I'll be too much. You know, this will happen. That'll happen. And that's the story that over the decades I have, um, thankfully, for the most part, said, you know, see ya. You, you, no, not a true story. Let's pick the one I'm more inclined by, that I'm more interested in, that is far more beautiful and deep and rich and true and powerful and on and on I could go. Okay. The, I resonate so heavily. So I'm going to give you some specific examples from my world that I resonate with. But first, I want to also let everyone know, when we're saying women, I happen to be speaking from a cisgendered woman's perspective. But mm -hmm. I want to say, just because Rana and I are saying women right now, that may be our focus of our work. That is not meaning this message is exclusionary. Any human has a narrative. Any human has stories. Any human struggles with or champions some of the things we're talking about here. And so I just want to be clear. Mm -hmm. I want my language to be as inclusive as possible. And I know Rana is of yeah. the same mindset. For so sure. please know that that just happens to be um, our perspective that isn't the perspective on this podcast Correct. today. Right. Really important. <sighs> that matters. You know what I'm thinking about? Yesterday, I was listening to a podcast um, with Glennon Doyle and Abby Wambach and Amanda Doyle. We're talking about um, all kinds of things with their guest, Tracy Ellis Ross. I don't know if you're familiar mm -hmm. with who mm -hmm. she is. Mm -hmm. And Tracy used this analogy that now is giving me just shivers up and down as you were talking. She said, sometimes I picture that when our, our souls or our essence, whatever we are before we come to earth and take in these bodies, jump into these bodies, she goes, I picture like this cauldron, like a stew pot. And it's, and, and, and whoever, whatever, God, universe, spirit guides, whatever we, all that we live and move and have our being in, that's how I define it, all, is, is, is creating this beautiful stew with this essence and that essence and these like souls are, are being grown up and then those are being plopped and one's in a woman in the 1800s and one's in me and one's in that dog that, you know, is uh, from 1982. And that that essence, though, they all have that essence of that stew. OK, can you follow mm -hmm. me? Mm -hmm. And that there and then when those souls come together, there is a recognition. There is a a rec. A, a, Oh, we're from the same water. Mm -hmm. Okay. I loved mm -hmm. it. She did it so much more eloquently and beautiful. <laughs> no, I'll, that I'll was great. I'll link the podcast, y'all, in the show notes. It's so good. 
But what I felt just now as you were talking was like, oh, Rana and I are from the same stew, man. We are from the same stew. <laughs> like it's a sisterhood. For sure. So, I got to tell you what I resonated with because I got to believe there's a lot of other people on this couch with us right now going, yeah, that idea, maybe it's being an oldest, I, although I don't like to make blanket statements like that, I too am the oldest, but that idea that we were fed or, or, or went ahead and assumed, even if we weren't fed it, that we had some responsibility and power to fix things. Mm-hmm. My precious mom was um, very depressed much of my life. Mm-hmm. And so I think I might have internalized, and I'm still kind of navigating this, and it was no fault of hers, but my need to fix and create peace or create levity or to remove tension, I developed that skill. I honed that skill and mastered it in my first marriage of 20 years where tension was very, very high. There was a Mm -hmm. lot of stress in that, in our household and in that marriage. And I took it upon myself that if it's to be fixed, like you said, it's all on me. Yeah. I, I, and, and that if I even know and recognize there's a problem, then it's incumbent upon me to fix it and change it because I now know about it. Right. God, what a fool's errand. Like that's a shit show right there. Just feeling all of that responsibility because to think we have that much power, I, I, I wrestle back and forth because we have incredible agency and power and I'm seeing that in my own life. And the way I can choose my mindset, the way I can choose my boundaries, there is incredible power in that. And I'm just learning that. Honest to God, Rana, I'm 52 mm-hmm. in the last year, but whatever, dude, I'll take it. It's here. Right. I'm not going to lament that I didn't have it 10 years ago. But at the same time, there's a hubris to think that we have all that power and that we also can't be a little bit surrendered. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? Like mm. navigating that dance? Cause I, yeah, I think I that. would, yeah, I think I would look at it a little bit differently. I think that the, there's no question in my mind that we have an incredible amount of power the bind in my experience in both my own life and the women that I spend time talking with um, is that we live in a world that shuts that down consistently. We've been enculturated to adapt, to morph, to compromise, to comply, to do whatever we can to fix, to make sure everyone else is fine, to sacrifice self on behalf of relationship, to um, step to the side and honor others. Like, again, these are super black and white kinds of categories, but systemically, culturally, those are the stories that have been fed to us, whether we've been aware of it or not. So when we choose to honor our own power, when we start to feel and acknowledge that agency and sovereignty and will and desire, it's, it's really hard to begin to express that, to begin to trust that, to begin to live into it and not default to feeling like we're being egotistical, narcissistic, mm-hmm. taking up too much space, um, the hubris piece, right? Like mm-hmm. I think 
that's we swing over to that side because it captures the message and the story that we've been told all along. Don't get ahead of yourself. Don't don't be too big for your britches. Who do you think you are? Uh All that. And again, even if we've not heard those actual words, Mm -hmm. our culture and those stories that are also in the water that Mm -hmm. we are swimming in all the time are profoundly shaping. Like they, they have so much power. Yeah. So I think that's the, that's the ongoing kind of journey of it, right? For us is how do I claim and hold and honor the power that is mine and simultaneously recognize that there are a lot of powers around me that don't want me to step into that, that would prefer I not acknowledge just mm-hmm. how much sovereignty and power is mine. It's okay, hard. so that you and I both share in common having um, had roots and many, many years, maybe decades for me at least, in strong religious settings. So mm-hmm. I think about the fact that certain faith practices, um, I wanted to add heretic and heresy kept popping in my mind as you were giving the list, the litany a minute ago of all the things we feel we are and the hubris and heretic and heresy just kept I love that. popping in my yeah. head because for so many years, I I just assumed that if I had agency and sovereignty, then I was a heretic because no in my faith practice, you were to be submissive and surrendered and, and, um, and in service, and everyone came before self. That was put, you know, on high as the mm-hmm. most important thing. And I've had to rewrite that story for myself because, you know, I you talked about swinging from the extremes. I thought you either had to adhere to the sacred texts and what the stories were, and those are God-breathed, and therefore that is truth. And everything we know about Eve, let's use Eve, okay? Sure. Is absolute truth. And to dismantle any aspect or to rewrite that story differently feels like heresy because it's on the opposite end. So then I thought, okay, well, if I don't accept that as God-breathed and absolute truth, then I have to cast it away completely. Mm -hmm. I do the extreme thing. I think Mm -hmm. we're somewhere in the middle in that all of those stories have an interpretation and have a storyteller, like everything. Yes. I don't care what what translation of a Bible you read or what other sacred texts from other faith practices you read. They all have a storyteller and a, a slant or a translation or a viewpoint. Absolutely. Every so, single one of them are subjective. There's no, no such thing as objective. Yeah. Ob, there's no such thing as an objective text or an objective truth or an obje- there's there's no such thing. It's always through a lens that either the teller brings or the listener absorbs. So how did you come to understanding that? And 
digging into sacred texts and the roles of women in history, especially in sacred texts and their mm-hmm. stories. And how did you make that shift? Because were you also like me? Yes, where you yes. thought you were a complete heretic to question yes. that it wasn't yeah, an apple sure. that Eve ate. Maybe it was a fig or, you know, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's an energy tale in the scheme of things. But yes, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> if all I were arguing was apples versus figs, I probably would right. not be nearly as heretical. You imagine. Um, uh, so, you know, I will say these days, if someone were to call me a heretic, I would say thank you. Yeah, um, that would not be offensive to me. I would say it's about time. Um, mm-hmm. And I would laugh because I just think it's silly. Like, I just think it's not actually true. Yeah. That said, I think for me, growing up in the church, knowing these stories inside out, upside down and backwards, what we're taught is to not argue with them, to not question them, that they are gospel truth somehow, that they're God breathed to use your language. And so the, I think the ironic thing for me is that when I began to think about them differently was when I was in seminary. Um, I entered seminary at 39, almost 40, um, and was working on my Master of Divinity degree. And two really significant things happened for me while I was, well, lots of things happened while I was there, but two things that I remember very particularly that sort of turned the page and shifted everything for me. One was when I was studying the original languages of Hebrew and Greek. Okay. And uh, as I, I mean, I'm not by any stretch conversational in them, but I could use the reference tools effectively to do the translation from the original language back into English. And it was a small class of us in Hebrew and only two women. And every day in class, we had to come with the text that we'd translated overnight. And we were working on the book of Ruth. And so then we would have to read our translations when we came to class in the morning. Hmm. And Carissa, the other woman in the class with me, and I would listen to man after man after man after man, basically say exactly the same thing. And then it would be our turn and ours would be different. Hmm. Not like changing the story, but these subtle sorts of things that were different. And I remember the men in the class, even the professor to some degree going, well, that's not right. Mm. And both of us would say, well, here's how we parse the verb. Here's who the subject is. Here's who the, here's the, like, we'd done it all technically exactly the same, but the nuance of the story through a woman's lens with full authority to translate it the way that we did, like, you don't get to tell me that I did it wrong. Like I did it the same way that everybody else did. I came away with a different story or a different telling of the story. And so that began to kind of get some wheels turning for me and thinking, well, all the stories have been told by men forever. Yeah. They're, like they're different. So that was one. The second thing that happened was I took a class that's never been offered again there. It was the only time it was ever offered. <laughs> she broke the class, um, y'all. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but it's called feminist critique. And, um, I sat there through the first few weeks of that class feeling so um, mm, overwhelmed, maybe slightly ashamed, actually, that I didn't know what I should have known. I don't feel that way about it now, but at the time I felt like, like, how did I not know 
about women, the objectification of women? How did I not know about patriarchy? How did I not know about misogyny? How did I not see these things when they're so obvious, so blatant, not just in the biblical text, though that would certainly be true, but in the world around me, in media, on television, billboards, magazines, everything, right? Like how did I, how had I not seen this? Yeah. So that class, again, original languages did opened, you know, kind of turned one page that class, like totally changed things for me. And I started thinking about what would happen if I looked at these stories of women, particularly in this text, the way I want to tell them, the way I think the women would want to have their story told versus Mm. the way that men have told their stories and no harm, Mm. no foul. Like I understand why the stories have been told the way that they have for thousands upon thousands of years. I get it. Uh, But that doesn't mean that we can't tell them differently. So the way I look at it, when you're talking about this, this uh, kind of uh, what's the word I want Um, line or (laughs) let's just say line, on one end, God breathed, on the other end, heretical, like I have to either completely buy it or I have to walk away totally. Yeah. For me, I think, no, I'm going to walk away from the doctrine. I'm going to walk away from the dogma. Mm -hmm. I'm going to walk away from the predominant theology. I'm walking away from the church. I'm walking away from the religion. I'm walking away from all of that. But those women's stories, I'm not walking away from those. Mm. they deserve to be heard and seen and known and honored. I want to hear them. Like, I want to know what they might have said. Um, And so I I don't feel, I feel like what I've been able to do for myself, hopefully for others, but for myself, is to hold on to an entire tradition of stories of women in a way that honors me that honors my story, that changes how I show up in the world on a day-to-day basis. But I can do that completely separate from the theology, the doctrine, the dogma, the church, the religion. The stories are still the stories. So why wouldn't I honor them? You know, I'm babbling here, but one of the things I often think about is, to your point, how we feel like we're either on board or we have to completely abandon the whole Uh venture is I think about stories like Isis, Medusa, um, what would be other amazing mythic stories, um, goddesses, yeah. um, any of these stories that, that we would no more think of discarding just because they're old and were set in a particular time frame than fly. We, w- we don't let those go. Mm. We, inf- we uh, refer to them all the time, not just women. Like we, we all know the story of Medusa. We all know the story of Aphrodite. We all have our understandings because it's part of our culture. We, we get it yeah. and we don't go, mm, I don't think I should actually pay attention to that story anymore. We don't do that. But with the biblical stories, if we've left behind or were never part of that religious tradition, we think, I don't want to hear the story of Eve. 
I don't want to hear the story of Hagar. I don't want to, like we push them away because we're fearful that we'll get sucked into the doctrine, that we'll get sucked into the patriarchy. And I think, well, then let's just pull them out of that. Let's just not talk to them, talk about them that way. Let's let them stand on their own two feet and imagine who they are as sovereign women with power. I love this so much because you're exactly right. That 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 you just feel like I've got a cat. It's like throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Exactly. That's what we feel like we have to do. And I understand yes. that. Like from a deconstruction standpoint, from a person who, you know, ha- grew up in that world and didn't yeah. leave it until I was, wow, like in my mid forties ish. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I know that world way better than any other world. Like yes. those, right? It's all consuming. Yeah. And so I completely understand and appreciate and respect the work of separating from that. I mean, yeah. talk about a story that's shaping one's life. It's it's close to impossible, in my opinion. I just think it's in our DNA. I think it's so hard. Even if we didn't grow up in it, it's still in our DNA. It's very it difficult to pull ourselves away. And so it makes sense to me that anyone who who is making that intentional choice would resist or reject anything that even slightly echoes of it. Yes. I, I totally get that. And at times I say, Absolutely. Go ahead. Reject it. Like Mm -hmm. it's part of the process. We have to cut the ties. And are there ways for me to, and this is again, my language, my story, my stuff. Like, I just don't want to let the women go. I don't want to throw them out. I want their stories. I want to be able to honor them the way that I want to be honored as a woman in this world. And that I would hope for others as well. So- Oh my gosh. So I would love it if you would, we're going to go to a quick break, but when we come back, would you share one of those stories? Maybe the one that's particularly resonant to you. Sure. And how that woman in history or sacred texts or whoever you choose um, has illuminated your own story or has called you out into who you and who you are, however that looks. Sure. I just love feel to. like let's take one bec- that many of us have our historical lens on and we know some basic facts typically and let's, let's dissect. Let's dissect. Sure, I'd love that. That'd be great. Okay. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. Y'all, it's a commercial by yours truly. I have an exciting new announcement. Listen for Real Podcast has a sister and it's Real Conversations speaker series live in person. The only thing better than having these amazing conversations where I picture you on the couch with us during the podcast is being actually with you, sharing space and sitting on an actual chair or couch with my guest, in person, and all of you right there in front of me together. I believe real conversations lead to connection and community. And if you are in Northern California and you want to be a part of that audience, we would love, love to have you 
Sunday, August 20th at the Harris Center in Folsom. It's gorgeous. You can get tickets from the link here in the show notes or go to harriscenter.net. But I know that there are others who agree with this need to gather or have candid conversations that are real and gritty and honest around issues that matter and issues that expand our perspectives and maybe shift our paradigm where necessary. And the presenting partner, Palladio, agrees and they are supporting this huge endeavor. Guess who else? Women's Connective of Folsom and Style Magazine. They all are supporting and sponsoring this amazing new speaker series. So I hope you will join us. Be there August 20th. And if for some reason you can't make August 20th, come on November 30th. We have a different topic for each one. See you soon. And we are back. Okay. So Rana, what stories coming to mind for you? Mm. Well, I know there I are lots of them. Up. Yep. Yeah. Lots of them. Um, but what I, you know, I could easily talk about Eve. I mean, the book is called rewriting Eve. My Ted talk is about Eve, like, uh, cause everybody knows that story, but the one I want to look at a little bit is the story of Hagar. Um, when people ask me, the my favorite it's sort of like trying to choose your favorite child which of course you can't actually do but in terms of my own story and how i got connected in a different way to these women and their stories hagar is really the one that comes to mind so okay. do you want give me to every, just kind of give the give the basics give the background yeah because for okay. the uninitiated not everyone sure. knows who that is where she comes sure. from yeah yeah so um the story of hagar is really buried in the story of abraham and Sarah. Abraham is one of the three patriarchs of all three of the predominant religious groups, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. Uh, Abraham is always there in all three of those. His wife's name is Sarah. Uh, They're very old and no kids. And yet their God has promised that he will be the father of nations. So Sarah, now in her 70s or some such thing, is irritated by the fact that this isn't moving along at the pace that she certainly had expected. And so Hagar, who is a slave of Abraham and Sarah, Sarah sends Hagar into Abraham's tent and has Hagar be the one who becomes pregnant. This is not uncommon practice. I mean, today we would say, "Ah," but of course we have plenty of stories of in our own country's history around slavery, where we know that this practice was considered part of the, I get, this is part of my right as the owner of you. I can have whatever I want of you. So Hagar sent in, she ends up pregnant. And as the text goes along, what we find out is that Sarah now feels slighted. Sarah thinks that Hagar thinks too much of herself. Nothing in the text tells us that Hagar actually is doing or saying anything any differently than she ever was. All we have is Sarah's perception. So Sarah goes to Abraham and says, send her away. So Abraham says, okay, super strong guy, definite feminist. (laughs) Send her um, and her child, by the way. Well, away. first, yeah. she's just pregnant. There's actually yeah. two stories oh, yeah, yeah, of right. her. But in the first one, she's sent away when she's pregnant. She's out in the middle of the desert. 
Um, actually, she isn't. She runs away the first time. Sorry, she runs away the first time. Um, and I want to just stop there and say that when I think about her reality, a woman who has no property, no rights, no voice, no, no, no ownership of even her own body, for her to run away at as a pregnant woman gives us a ton of insight into how awful that situation had to be. We rarely talk about what might have been going on in terms of her treatment by Abraham and Sarah, but I am like, who runs away in that condition with nothing to her name into the middle of the desert, unless that seemed like a better choice than the one that she was in. So she runs away to the desert. She's crying. She's afraid. And some image of some kind appears in the desert for her. And we, the text tells us that it was, you know, it was an apparition or a seeing of God. And that God says, where have you come from? Where are you going? What's happening? Hagar talks for a few minutes, you know, they go back and forth. And um, Hagar then the the voice that's speaking to her, the God or the angel that appears says, I need you to go back to Abraham and Sarah. And she does. She goes back. Um, And again, lots we could talk about, about how this has been interpreted around women who are in abusive marriages. They should return to their abuser, like all kinds of icky things that have been made out of this. Mm. But she goes back. The son is born. Then Sarah does finally get pregnant And the two boys are growing up together. Sarah doesn't like this either. So now she says to Abraham, I need you to get rid of her. So again, she goes off into the desert now with her child. Similar situation. Um, They're both on the edge of death. Uh, She cries out. A well appears so that they have water. And Mm. the divine shows up again and says, your son is going to be okay. You're going to be okay. Off you go end of story, basically. There's a little bit more to it. Okay. I'm giving, this is a horrible telling of the story. There's so much more in there. (laughs) Anyway, here's what I want to say about this. I was um, in school, in seminary. Uh, My marriage of, at that time, probably about 12 years um, was excruciating Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't have a way of making sense of why it was so hard. And because I was married to a pastor, because I'm still very deeply involved in the church, I Oof. can't see a way out. I can't even think about not staying because that feels more than heretical. That, that feels like You know, I can't, I can't go anywhere. I can't leave. So I'm in therapy. I have a spiritual director that I meet with as well. And this woman says to me one day, she says, Rana, um, I hear all of this agony that you're in that you talk to me about every week. Um, and I just kind of wonder, like when you think about this desert that you happen to be in, um, what maybe a woman in the desert from all these stories that you know might have to say about this. And I said, well, I can think of at least three stories of women in the desert right now. And she goes, okay, well, which one do you want to go with? And I said, well, okay, let's start with the first one. Let's go with Hagar. 
And she said, all right, well, what do you think she would say to you about the desert that you are in, which she certainly knows really, really well? Yeah. And I said, I don't know. And she said, well, I think you should think about that. Mm. So I went home, opened up a document, and I literally sat there, closed my eyes, and started typing. What do I think Hagar would say to me? Can I imagine her voice on my behalf? Ooh. And I still, I mean, it just chokes me up. Like it was so overwhelming to hear such kindness. Oof. And I think, I mean, all of us have experienced this, hopefully, as women, when we're with another woman who gets it, yeah. who knows exactly what we're feeling and doesn't try to, you know, make it look prettier or say all things work together for good, or <laughs> I'm sure someday you'll see what this is all about. You know, like, I don't want to hear that. that. That's not helpful. And Hagar didn't do any of that. Hagar talked to me about what it means to be in the desert. Hagar talked to me about a, a God, a, a divine that shows up for women in the desert. Mm. Hagar, and I should just say this about the text, like <laughs> Hagar's story in the Christian and Jewish tradition is the first story in the entire text in which the divine appears to a not woman? to Adam and Eve. Not oh. God doesn't show up. We have an illusion of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, but we're never told that they saw God. That yeah. we don't have any text that tells us that God was seen in any form until Hagar. And I look at that and I say to myself, okay, really? Like the very first time that the divine decides to show up and be seen is a woman who's what? a slave, who's marginalized, who's been harmed, who's out wandering the desert completely alone. Uh, well, that might be a God that I'd be willing to consider. Oh my God. Yes to that. Wow. Right. That's and that's huge. not the God we've heard of. And, and honestly, like I then started searching, right. I started researching theology, like who's talking about this. It's called a theophany. Uh, the a theophany is when there's a seeing of the divine in some form. Okay. This is the first theophany. <laughs> How come no one's talking about the fact that the first theophany was a woman? What the hell? Yeah. Um, now, I've had a million things like that happen to me since then as I've dug and dug and dug and researched with many more stories. But my point in all this, Jen, is that, and I, is that still today, like when I think about seasons that are really painful, times in which I feel really alone, uh, yeah. choices that I have to make that feel like I'm damned if I do and I'm damned if I don't. <laughs> uh, I think, okay, Hagar is part of my matrilineal line. Hagar calls me her daughter, her lineage, her kin. What does she offer me? Can I picture her standing next to me? Will I see myself walking through whatever I'm walking through with her next to me? I'm yeah. not alone. 
in these places of pain and struggle, or to your point, jubilation and celebration. There are women and stories in our history that have, I think, the desire to be heard, to show up on our behalf. Yeah. Um, just as we would think about, you know, if we're further down the line here, if we think about the goddesses and their presence on our behalf. Yeah. I think, I don't think about it any differently. I think, well, Hagar can show up for me exactly the same way. Eve can. The woman at the well can. I mean, I can pick any of them. Um, <sighs> so I can keep going. I may have gone oh way off the rails in terms Not of where all. you wanted me this- to go, but. That's where we specialize off the rails. That's what we do here. (laughs) Okay. You know what you just made me think of though? Y'all listen, we are also those stories. It is not just the famous names that have been in sacred texts or, uh, you know, one peace prizes. It's not just a Malala use of use. Right, 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 right. I always know who you mean. Yusefi? Yusavai, I think it is. Anyway, Malala, you're amazing. So um, you need no introduction. And Oprah Winfrey, I mean, we could name so many. And then Arana Dietrich, a Jen Oliver, a Christina Fischera, a a Shannon O'Brien. I'm just thinking Mm -hmm. of an Allison Carver. I'm thinking of women I know. We too... You just put it together for me why I believe and feel called to in my work to elevate and amplify the voices of women and marginalized people because yes. of that. That's it right there. By yeah. by revisiting these stories, we are also writing our own. Mm-hmm. And y'all, our stories matter. Our voices matter to the people we are walking arm in arm with. Just as like, Brana, it was such a beautiful thing to picture Hagar ministering to you in Mm. in the way you just described that. Mm. Because that's what I felt like she was doing. She was ministering to you and to your soul in that writing. I mean, that is such a beautiful picture. We are ministering to each other in this conversation, in both the sharing of it, the listening of it. We are offering something to our kin and our lineage, mm-hmm. blood or not, doesn't matter. None mm-hmm. of that matters. Mm-hmm. And so this is why looking at our stories, deconstructing them, rewriting them, asking questions of the narratives we've believed or the narrative, honestly, that comes out of our own mouth. Yes, that- for sure. That is our quickest, well, for me personally, I will speak for myself. Some of my quickest undoing was what came out of my own mouth about what I said and believed about myself. Mm-hmm. I've learned to call complete BS on all most of that because it yeah. was lies from the pit of hell, really. Yes. That we're not serving anyone. Mm-hmm. It was that, it, it reminded me too, I'm reminded of Marianne Williamson's quote where she talks about um, our li- our power. Yes, and that it is not um, the darkness that frights, frightens us, but our power, and that as we dim our lights, that that's not in service to humanity. And I'm paraphrasing yeah, exactly. everything. Yeah, um, I know. To shrink to make other feel people feel better is not in mm-hmm. service to them. But as right. we let our own light shine, we offer invitation and permission for others. Right? Yeah. 
And so that's what, why these stories matter so much. Mm -hmm. That's why when we can go and read a sacred text and look at it with new eyes and hear it with new ears or read uh, a book like yours about Eve and, and see us in her even, or the other people around us. Mm -hmm. I I just, Mm -hmm. oh my gosh, what a beautiful revelation. Mm. Right. And then, and it's also, I'm reminded too of, I use a phrase um, that Casey Baker, who is one of my mentors in the Women Speak Method, um, she says, we listen so deeply for women in our circles that they cannot help but blossom in our presence. That's beautiful. And so I want to, I want to be reminded and say, let's listen so deeply for and to another woman that she and we cannot help but blossom as a result of it. Exactly. Whether it's women in history and spiritually they still minister to us. For me, I believe there are guides all around us and all that I live and move and have my being, it's all there and ministering to me and giving me wisdom and intuition and instinct. Um, and a lot of it's in me too. In, in, mm-hmm. If I could say it's in my body, which... Mm-hmm that it's encapsulated here. But mm-hmm. I, I just, there's such a beauty in what you're talking about. Mm. And what I'm, I want to go back to one other thing. And it's that patriarchal misogynistic stuff. Sometimes we don't know what we don't know. I remember just a number of years ago, I'm talking the last five years, Rana. Mm that I honestly thought the patriarchy wasn't a thing. I thought it was like a conspiracy theory, like the Illuminati. I, I mean, I literally like remember thinking mm-hmm. like, that's not a thing. Like, what is that? Yeah. And I remember a very good friend, Julie Goring, who I've had on this podcast, and we discussed this back in season one. I, she was a dear friend who called me out in a very respectful way, but said, Jen, what you're saying is lending to the problem. And I feel like you're speaking from a place of, of dogma mm. and, and it's true. And she kind of called me out and said, it is very real. And just because it wasn't your experience necessarily, mm-hmm. and actually it was, as I it look was, back. It was, of course it was. Yeah. <laughs> it. But, you know, I was speaking from a place of white privilege. You look yes. at my bio on this podcast and it says I'm, you know, this cisgendered white woman from a middle class setting with high socioeconomic and educational status. I had all the privilege in the world. So of course I wasn't thinking the patriarchy was a problem. Yeah. Now it absolutely I fed right into it and I defended the patriarchy because mm-hmm. I craved certainty. A lot of, of people defend certain things like dogma or whatever. I did. I'll speak for myself because I craved and needed certainty. Yes that felt secure to me. Yes. Yeah. Now I, think I feel that's part a little of, untethered and it's okay. Yes. It's more than okay. Yeah. It's yeah. more than okay. It's, it's yeah. a hard, it can be a hard place to be when what we want is, you know, to be able to stand still or have things in black and white or true or false or good or bad. It just isn't our our experience. It's just not our reality. It's not the way that things actually are. But wow, do we look for ways to make sense of everything that's happening around us. And I think, 
you know, you've talked about this in other podcasts, like the, the, our brain so wants the clarity, so demands the, yeah. the, the, the categories of black, white, good, bad, right, wrong. Um, but there's so much more wisdom that we can draw on that is not the brain <laughs> that we have the opportunity, I think, to, to see things a little bit more holistically. You know, yeah, one of the things I, mean, I was thinking about that you were saying is that, you know, when I've looked at these stories, in addition to rewriting them in ways that are imaginative and redemptive and inviting their their voice, their perspective, their wisdom, I spend an equal amount of time talking about what we've, how they've usually been told. Mm. the harm that that has inflicted, the things that we've come to believe about ourselves because of how the stories have been told. Now, I say it's not the story itself. It's the way it's been told. And that's why often you go to Eve's story because the way the, the story itself is fine. There's nothing in that story that should be upsetting, that should have ever told us that we're to blame for everything, that we should bear the brunt of all responsibility for every bad thing that happens. None of that's in the text. That's how the story's been told. It's been the interpretation of the story that has yeah. gotten us into trouble. And so I think in order, at least for me, in order to be able to go back to these texts, these stories, given that I've left the text behind, Mm. that I don't hold to the dogma or the doctrine or the theology anymore, I have to deconstruct and break down and name in really honest ways, here are the ways this story has harmed us. Here's Mm. why you wouldn't want to listen to this story. Of course you don't. It's been used to teach you that you are not enough, too much, a problem, but whatever all of those yeah. things are. So let's name how the stories have been twisted and utilized, told over the centuries. And now, full stop, let's tell them over again. Let's think about these a different way. Ooh, will you give just one example, maybe a sneak peek too, because your book's coming out on October 3rd. Um, Rewriting Eve. Yep. Would you give one example, just a sneak peek? I don't want to give away the store here because that would be silly. Everyone buy the <laughs> book, okay? Because it's rad. But would you give an example? Sure. Of, yeah. I, I. Yeah, I'll give you an example. So the, I mean, I've, I've got. Oh my gosh, there's so much. Yeah, I've got lots of them. Like I could easily do Eve, but here's the one that comes to my mind. Especially if you've grown up in the church, you know the story of the woman at the well. Yes. Do we know the story? The story, the woman, uh, this is in the New Testament. So it starts by telling us a woman came to a well in the middle of the day. Uh, Jesus and his disciples come by and he says to her, "Um, could you draw me some water? And she says, who are you to talk to me? I'm only, you know, like I'm this lowly Canaanite. You don't talk to Canaanites. Anyway, it's this and the disciples go away and in their conversation, Jesus says to her, why don't you go call your husband? And she says, I don't have a husband. And he says, that's right. You've had four so far. And the man that you live with now isn't like this thing goes back and forth and back and forth. Okay. <laughs> the way that most of us have heard that story here, here's the, the bottom line of this story as I've always heard it. Okay. Thank God 
that this that Jesus happened upon this woman and was able to cut through all of her excuses and all of her arguments and all of her distractions and all of her evasion to get her to a place where she could admit her sin. Woo! This is basically what we've been told about this story. We're so lucky that Jesus came by and somehow got her to acknowledge that in fact she's a sinner, which is what has her running back to the village, leaving her water jugs behind and telling everybody else, come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Okay. Yep. Now, here's what I want to say about that story. In every in all of the Gospels, the four books of the Christian New Testament that are telling the life of Jesus, yeah. this is the longest and the smartest theological conversation he ever has. Ever. It's the longest conversation he ever has, quite frankly, that we have recorded. Um. <laughs> he talks to his disciples all the time, but basically saying, how come you still don't get this? How many more times do I have to tell this to you? Like, what's wrong with you that you don't understand what it is that I'm telling? And he's constantly talking in stories, right? In parables, right? When he's talking to large groups of people, et cetera. This conversation with this one woman is long, involved, theological, incredibly intelligent. She knows things that are shocking that a woman would know because women weren't educated. Women didn't go to the temple and get the same learning that men did. She knows all this stuff. I look at that and I think, Jesus must have been thrilled to have the opportunity to sit down and have a conversation with someone who got him, who was smart enough to stay the course, who could hang on in there. And they bantered back and forth and talked about all kinds of things. And then what I think about is, who was that woman after that conversation? Oh. How did that change how she showed up? in her day-to-day -day life. Right. Now we know that she was already like shunned from the townspeople. Yep. You know, I mean, I've written so much about this. Like the fact that she's had four husbands, women had no rights. Women had no possibility of life after they were divorced or widowed. Like they were like fending for themselves. They were homeless basically. Yep. Something about her invited four marriages she's survived that long yeah she's like who is she like she's amazing she's not someone we should be shaming no and so then i think okay where has this been true in my story wow. where have i felt like you know my shameful past is so overbearing and so oppressive, I'd be lucky if I could be forgiven for that. I'd be lucky if I could have someone name just how awful I actually am so that I could move forward having been blessed. Wow. I'm being super facetious at this point, but you get my point. Instead, totally. what if I saw myself as a woman who has lived a million lives, who 
has known incredible heartache and pain, who has made shitty decisions in her own past and has had hard things happen to her. And what if what I saw was a woman who has endured, who has persevered, who is brilliant, who can Mm. step into conversation and hold her own, who has plenty to say and sees herself as worthy of that conversation, that way of being in the world. Well, that's not how we've told that story. Yeah. Why not? Well, a million reasons why not. But that's what I, you know, this is what I spend my time doing is saying, that's not the right way to tell it. Like, Mm -hmm. or maybe better said, you can tell it that way. And mm-hmm. there's probably wisdom and goodness and learning it's not that can come from that. It's not the only way to tell it. It's not but the it only way. But it is not way. the only way. And yeah. when I start to think about this again from a gendered perspective, because mm-hmm. it's a story about a sinful woman, mm-hmm. and that's the story that we as women who sit in the pews hear, mm-hmm. what alternative do we have but to swallow that and to go, well, yep, I guess I need to find the parts of her that apply to me. Mm-hmm. Where have I sinned? Where am I evading the truth? Where am I not having honest conversations? What, you know, like that's what we do. And I'm like, no, bullshit. Let's go a totally different direction here with this. So there's one and example. You know, I no, I love that example because by by way by way of you just sharing that, I just saw how I related to that story, knowing it historically. I definitely did see it also in the way that it was fed in many circles, as you put it in the beginning. And what I see in it now is, for me, there is that woman could have been defensive and asserted and run off. Instead, she stayed and had a spirit of inquiry and exploration. And almost I almost picture them kind of a banter back and forth. Exactly. That's how I see it. And in exchange, and you know what that story did for me? I saw Jesus differently. I saw him as a feminist and as a person who is a fan of humans and people in a culture, if we understand the culture that Jesus walked in during mm-hmm. that time frame, um, to have been surrounded by women, to speak to women, to um, to have women at your side. There was so much he did. He was like this total badass feminist, awesome lover of souls and humans. No my, my view of feminism now for me is very much a broad human, um, not just purely about women. And mm-hmm. I really saw, saw Jesus through that lens, through that story. Mm-hmm. And I love the idea that some of the ways we can make sense or relate to stories is through exploration and this curiosity and beautiful, luscious spirit of inquiry <laughs> versus and and kind of playing with the stories, right? Exactly. Re- rewriting them again. Yeah, there's not one right way to tell or write a woman's or a person's story, there can be many and Mm -hmm. there isn't just, it's not an only. And you can hear, can't you in there, the part of us that if we've grown up in the church feels like that's a very dangerous thing to do. Oh God, I still bristle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think there's no risk. Nothing bad is going to happen. You know, no. the earth is not going to cave in beneath your feet. Um, you, you, you have permission 
to be curious about the mm-hmm. text, to imagine it in a way that is meaningful to you. Mm-hmm. You know, no, nothing, nothing. I mean, you know, perhaps it's helpful to have someone walk through that process with you. But I just say to people all the time, like, how do you want to tell the story? How would you want to find meaning in it? Mm-hmm. What would be meaningful for you? Go for it. Yeah. Because, and again, I don't often talk about God, but if I were to say that, like, let's think about this. Do you think that God thinks only one way to tell that story? Right. Don't get it wrong. I was just thinking that. Or I was that, just thinking that. Or that maybe God thinks, I love that you're in there. I yes. love that you're imagining this. Anything you imagine that is kind and generous and loving and redemptive and empowering, go for it. Yes. It's that same perspective. That is exactly what, uh, and a place I came to is, is that let's use that example of God, that the God I see, however you want to look at it is so lavish and diverse. Look at creation. Look at the number Mm -hmm. of fish in the sea for crying out loud. Look at the plants, look at what plants do. Look at the diversity of humans and the capacity and what DNA can do. So really is that, I'm using my air quotes, one source only going to be, this is only one narrow interpretation. This is the only way you can look at Eve or Hagar or a Mm -hmm. person when everything about that entity is broad and possible and full of everything's possible. Everything is possible. Exactly. You know what I mean? Like yeah, I have a hard time articulating it. Just it's so <laughs> clear to me now to go, oh, okay. Yeah. So uh we could go on forever. And couldn't we? I love our stories. What do you want people to know about the book that's coming and anything else before we hang up? Because um I'm just so excited. I'm so excited to find myself in the story. I'm so Mm. excited to see new aspects of myself. I'm excited to also view other people in this beautiful new way that's just bigger and broader and more Mm. just rich. And and so I'm just, I, I can't wait. I can't wait to mm. lay eyes on it. What What are you thinking as we wrap up? And um, mm. what do you want people to know? Yeah, I'm excited about it coming out. Like I've been working on this, you know, certainly it's been an aspect of my own life, my own practice, my own growth and transformation. So to now move it out into the world, this thing that I've birthed for yeah. 20 years um, into a space that other people can be curious about it is daunting, but also super exciting. Yeah. Um, the book itself, I've taken 10 of these stories uh, and rewritten them. Uh, I offer the story as it's predominantly been told, like I've paraphrased the text and added that into the book itself. And then there's a number of vignettes in each chapter that are my take on the story, what I think the woman's wisdom has to offer us today. And then I end each of them with a blessing where I've imagined her voice on your behalf. Oh um, my gosh, I love that so much. Yeah. And then there's a study guide, there's study qu- at, you know, journaling reflection questions at the end of every chapter. So I'm super hopeful, Jen, that it is profoundly meaningful and relevant 
to both women like you and I who've grown up in the church, maybe are even still in it. I hope yeah. that it still speaks, that it's, I don't, I have no reason to be dissonant or try to convince people to go right. stay. Like I have, I don't have an agenda in that regard. Right. So I hope that it is really meaningful for people who are and have been in a church evangelical kind of Christian world. Mm -hmm. I also hope and believe that it is equally powerful and relevant for people who have gone beyond that, who mm -hmm. are looking at their own sense of the sacred and even their own practices far outside the context of organized religion, that on either end of that spectrum, that there mm -hmm. is something to be found and discovered and heard and hopefully taken in, in a really precious and tender way that invites yeah. you to live a story of your own that is more powerful and more wise and all, all the things that you already are. Okay. That is the most perfect way to end this, that we would invite everyone to their story. Oh, yeah. Y'all, may you be invited into your story. May you live your story with joy and with reverence, knowing it's sacred. And God, that's my prayer for everybody. Mm, Honestly, mm -hmm. that's that's mm -hmm. my wish for us and for everyone listening and even those who aren't, that they could live more, live their story more deeply and with a beautiful spirit of exploration and curiosity and joy as they uncover even difficult things. May there be joy at the root and grace. May there be grace yes. for, and, and I think these stories offer grace. Um, we it sh they show us how to offer grace to one another, but really to ourselves first. That's really big. Yeah. Oh, Rana, I may it be so. Rana, I adore you. I adore you. I thank you for just being my sister friend um, in this life, and I'm just grateful we know each other. Really grateful. All right, y'all have a beautiful week. We'll see you next time. Bye. Listen for Real is produced by the Jen Oliver Collective and is edited and mixed by Mark Brown. Our music, entitled Zero, is written and performed by Shannon Curtis. If you believe conversations like these belong in the world, would you please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast? And even better, share it with someone else as a real conversation starter. And if you crave something in person, join our audience at the Real Conversation Speaker Series. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you next time.